0: When people ask me who can serve as a model for families today, I say the holy family. And they say, Well, Deacon, the Holy Family, wait, wait a minute. They were perfect. I mean, whenever you see pictures of the Holy Family, you see Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the halos on around their head. Look, how, how can we emulate that? I said, Well, wait a minute. Have you even looked through the Bible? to see the story of the Holy Family. So what I want to do is just want to take a quick walk through the scriptures to see if anything in the life of the Holy Family is important for our life today. So the first thing we need to understand is that Mary and Joseph were married. You're saying, duh, Deacon, well, hold on now. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter one, verse 18, it says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say betrothed, what do we mean? Engaged. Betrothal did not mean engaged back in the time of Jesus. Back in the time of Christ, marriage was a two-step process. The first step was called the edusin. The edusin was the actual Ceremony that established the legal covenant bond. It was overseen by a rabbi. They exchanged the vows, and there were two shoshbim a male shoshbim and a female shoshbim. What do we call them today? With, yeah, best man, maid of honor, witnesses. The only way the erusin could be broken was by death or divorce. That's the only way it could be broken. Now, the girl was typically somewhere around 13, 14, 15 years old. Now, you're saying to yourself, wow, that's nuts. Well, hold on. You got to think of their worldview, okay? When a, a girl was old enough to have her first cycle, that meant she was old enough to have a child. Therefore, she was old enough to get married. So what would happen after the Ed Hussein, the girl would go back to live with her family while her husband prepared a home for them to live in together. Typically, he would build an addition on, well, it was his parents' house, but the way they phrased it, it would be an addition onto his father's house. That's where we get the idea of mother in law suite from. Seriously, it goes all the way back to the time of Christ. Now, this would take eight, 10 months, maybe a year, Depending on how skilled the husband was, how much help he had as a carpenter, adding this addition onto their home. When everything was done, the male shosh would go through the town and make the announcement: "The bridegroom is coming! The bridegroom is coming!" All the preparations would be made for the wedding feast. The bride, the groom would show up. They, um, be they go under a hoopah, in fact. Our Jewish brothers and sisters, to this very day, when they get married, they get married under a hupa. Hupa in Hebrew means bridal chamber, right? She invites him in, they, they say some prayers together, they come out, they have the wedding feast. For how long do they, has the wedding feast, by the way? Seven days. It's a week. Okay? It's a week long. Now, after that, they, there's a procession with the, the bride back to the home, and the husband literally takes his wife... Into their new home. right? That's how it worked. Now that you understand that, let's read this again. When, mother, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, the Edocene, before they came together, that second part, by the way, is called the Nisuin. So when the angel Gabriel came to the blessed mother, she was already legally, covenantally married to Joseph. She was not in what got pregnant out of wedlock. So I hear some process. Well, she got married on a way no, she was covenantally married. In fact, if you keep reading, uh, she was found with out the Holy Spirit and her husband, Joseph, he's already called her husband, planned to put her, uh, 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 a just man only to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. That was divorce. Send her away quietly was their way of saying divorce. You can't get divorced unless you're married. Now, why is that important? Now, oh, by the way, a little foot. So every once in a while throwing a little interesting footnotes here. Now, why was he gonna send her away quietly so I couldn't put to shame? What was the penalty for adultery? Stoning. Who was stoned to death? The woman? Wrong! Both people were stoned to death. Somebody look up Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and somebody else look up Deuteronomy twenty-two. Verse 22. You will see clearly that the, the woman and the man caught in adultery were both stoned to death. Equal opportunity stoning. All right? Now, why is that important? I, now, here, look, this is just Deacon Harold's speculation here. Remember when the woman was caught in adultery and they tried to trap Jesus? We got him. Because if he says, stone her, he's teaching love and peace and forgiveness. He's contradicting his own teaching. If he says don't stone her, ah, he can't be the Messiah because he's going against the law. We've got him. So what does Jesus do? He bends down and writes on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. I guess my speculation, I think he wrote, where's the dude? Because it, it, I think Jesus, if you're trying to get me on the point of the law, the law says both are to be stoned. She was caught with somebody. Where's he? That's just me, though. But the, the point is this. The first thing we see here that Mary's a teenager and she's pregnant. Gee, we don't have pregnant teenagers today, do we? Joseph finds out his wife is pregnant and he ain't the daddy. That don't happen today, does it? But here's the difference. Joseph trusted God. God. The first husband, Adam, failed his family, which I'll show you in a few minutes. Joseph did not. Adam was silent; he said nothing when Satan came to destroy his family, and Joseph is also silent. What do I mean? Which uh, um, gospel has the quotes from Joseph? Is it Matthew or Luke? Anybody remember that has the quotes from Joseph? Anybody remember none of them man does not have one word in the entire Bible because his actions spoke louder than his words. He did everything faithfully that God asked him to do without saying a word. Now, of course, Mary's pregnant now and they have to go to Bethlehem. Right, Beit lachem in Hebrew, lachem, beth lachem, means house of bread. They have to go to Bethlehem, why? You're getting the taxes, but why Bethlehem? Why not another town? Why Bethlehem? He had to go back to the house of his ancestry, right? Who was his ancestor? David. But why Bethlehem? Who, who lived there? Jesse. If you look at 1 Samuel 16, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Remember Isaiah, a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, which is why, by the way, Matthew had to start off with that genealogy, right? You know, as deacons, we got, sometimes we got to read that genealogy, like all those names, you know, why is that important? Because Matthew is writing for Jews. If he cannot establish that Jesus is descended from Abraham through David, they will not listen to another thing he has to say. That's why he has to start with Abraham, 14 generations from Abraham to David, then another 14 generations from Abraham to the Babylonian exile, and another 14 generations from Babylonian exile down to Joseph. So, of course, when they get back to Bethlehem, they get to the hotel, the concierge meets them and says, oh... The Savior is about to be born right this way. Here's the red carpet. We'll take you up to the penthouse suite. You get to here's champagne on ice. There's some chocolate on the pillows. When the child is born, let us know so we can celebrate. Is that in Luke? Is that anybody remember what that is? <laughs> it's in none of them. That didn't happen. <laughs> they were homeless. Gee, we don't have homeless families today, do we? Then. Herod is trying to kill all the children. So now they have, yes, Joseph has to take his family and not just leave his city, leave his country and go to another country to find safety for his family. Gee, we don't have families today that have to leave their countries of origin to go to another country because of war, famine, natural disaster, whatever, to find, that doesn't happen today, does it? How many people were not born in the United States besides me? Ah, we got some fellow immigrants here, right? Now, let me, oh boy, I'm debating whether I should say this or not. Um, Yeah, why not? What the heck? You only live once. I'm an immigrant to this country, okay? I became a citizen when I was 17 years old. I have incredible opportunities because of what this country affords us. This is, in my opinion, the greatest country in the world because of the opportunities this country has for someone who's willing to come here and work hard to make something of themselves. No better country in the world than the United States. I I willingly gave up my citizenship to Barbados so I could become a citizen here. Now we put my cop hat on. I was in law enforcement for 23 years. My specialization was violence, risk, and threat assessment. I trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and at Quantico, doing advanced techniques of how to train police officers how to identify and respond to threats of terrorism. I taught a course on contemporary threat assessment methodology. I used to lecture. One of my my, um, programs was featured on Discovery Channel. I know what I'm talking about. There are people coming here trying to kill us. There is no question or no doubt about that. I have been in the room assessing threats against this country, in the room. I had a certification to carry a weapon around the president. I know what I'm talking about. Now, here's the way you solve the immigration issue and nobody wants to do it. You make legal immigration easier you make illegal immigration hard you make it so hard that you say oh i might as well just do it the right way but nobody wants to do that because everybody has their special interests and you know what those people get in the office they stop caring about us they get in they say whatever they want to say to get in there and then they do whatever they want to do to stay there and who gets we do for example they pass obamacare <laughs> and they exempt themselves So they they can keep their insurance, but the rest of us, oh, huh? They want to talk about public school education, which is great, but those of us who want to support Catholic schools' vouchers, oh, no, but none of their kids go to public school. Anyway, sorry about that. I just, you know. Then... They, Jesus is 12 years old they go off to Jerusalem as they did every year on pilgrimage and they're a day back into the trip they're walking along, probably went like this they're walking along Mary says, hey Joseph, have you seen Jesus? I thought he was with you I thought he was with you where's Jesus? Right? and they enter into those terrifying moments where their child is missing and they don't know where the child is Gee, that doesn't happen today, does it? But at least that story had a good ending. Those of us who are in law enforcement know, even a missing persons case, if you don't have a lead, a good solid lead, within 48 to 72 hours, you, the chances of finding that child alive diminish greatly. But you can't say that to the parents because you have to give them hope. Now, fortunately, in this situation, it had a good ending. They found them. It's like a needle in a haystack, though. Imagine... You are going to, to, to Chicago O'Hare, which I hate that airport, by the way. Uh, they say go, you go to O'Hare. And, you know, you're doing a count of your kids. And one's missing. Where do you get, begin to look at Chicago for your kid? That's what it was like for them. Three days of stress. Three days. They find him. And Mary, uh, the scriptures, because she's the blessed mother. But, the you know, she was like, but if you look in the Greek, it's just like, why did you do this to us? She was a mom and she was upset, but see, oh, she, she's glad, but she, And what's Jesus' response? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? What? But, I, no, and I, you know who I feel bad for, really? Joseph. Joseph had one job. He lost God. Come on, now. Now, at some point, we can surmise that Joseph dies. Because after the finding in the temple, there are no more Joseph sightings, so we can surmise that he is dead. How can we guess? A couple things. First of all, at the presentation of the temple, remember he Simeon blesses both of them, then he turns only to Mary. This child is destined for the fall and the rise of many a sign to be spoken against, and the sword shall pierce your own soul. He only says that to Mary. That's my first clue. Second clue: wedding feast of Cana. Jesus there. Disciples there, Mary's there No Joseph Very unusual in Middle Eastern culture For a family go to a wedding And dad not be there Third and biggest clue At the foot of the cross Who did Jesus give care of his mother to? John Wouldn't have done that if her husband was still alive To take care of her So Joseph is probably deceased So Mary becomes a single mom Gee we don't have those today do we And then Finally Mary has to endure what none of us who have children could ever imagine. We all believe that our children are going to outlive us because that's the way it's supposed to be. But Mary has to watch her only child suffer and die in front of her and there's nothing she can do about it. Gee, that doesn't happen today, does it? So even though they were perfect. Even though they raised God, the holy family wasn't spared the reality and the hardships of family life. But they lived that family life in complete accord with the will of God, which is not always easy. Look, I was a Benedictine in my 20s, okay? I was a monk in my 20s. I'll tell you, and I've been married for 24 or 25 years coming up in August. I'll tell you something right now. Being married is a lot harder than living in a monastery. I'll tell you right now. (laughs) Marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done, but also the most beautiful and the most rewarding. So I want to talk about the role of families. I want to start off talking about the dads. Now, St. John Paul II, that was my man, John Paul II. He wrote a beautiful, he wrote a beautiful encyclical letter called Mulieris Dignitatem, on the dignity and vocation of women. In there he says this, women are more capable than men of paying attention to another person. That is correct. When I travel, I travel 200,000 miles a year. I do about five or six international trips a year. A couple years ago, I was in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Now, their internet didn't work as good as ours. So I usually Skype my wife or FaceTime. I could see and everybody talk to them. But in this one, the video wasn't working, but the audio was working. Now, I'm a guy. When I travel and I wanna check in at home, I say, hey, hon, how's it going? You know what I wanna hear? One, <laughs> two, three four, five, okay, honey, I love you, okay, honey, talk to you tomorrow, bye, boom, done, I'm a guy, not my wife, okay, hey, how's it going, hi, hon, one, one A, one A, subprime one, subprime two, subprime three, one B, one C, one D, two A, by the time we get to three, I'm done. We're 6,000 miles away, and she just stops the conversation She goes, You're not listening to me, are you? And she's right. How do you guys do that? How do you do that? And I couldn't even see her. I'll tell you, John Paul too. that's why the man's the same. He knows what he's talking about. And he says that the man... Even though he shares in the parenting relationship, always remains outside the process of pregnancy and the baby's birth. And in many ways, he has to learn his own fatherhood from the mother. Oh, what? Oh, oh, JP, hold up. A man learns his fatherhood from the mother? Well, then I thought about it. In a very practical way, that's true. Because guys, when did you find out you were going to be a dad? When your wife said, I'm pregnant, right? So you learn your fatherhood from the mother. But I think the Pope's a little deeper than that, right? I think what he's saying is that in a woman's fiat, like Mary's fiat, her yes in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, that we pray every Sunday, credo Spiritus Santos Dominum et Vificantem. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of. Because a woman cooperates with the Holy Spirit and that life-giving power in a way that no man can. In fact, even if a woman never has a baby, she becomes a nun, it doesn't matter. By the very nature of how God created her, she is a life giver and the life bearer. By the very nature of who she is as a woman. It's beautiful. And when a woman says yes to that gift, that gift makes possible the gift of our fatherhood. So when we reject the heart of love, we reject our own fatherhood. This is what happened in the garden. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, he put, now Genesis chapter 2 is more anthropomorphic, so there's an image of the man as male, okay? So God puts him in the garden and says, to till and to keep it. Now when you read that, you say, oh, he made him the gardener. Isn't that swell? Here's what's going on. The word fertil in Hebrew is abad. Abad means a work that's in the form of service. And to keep is shamar, which means to protect and defend. So what God is doing, he's putting man in the garden, and he's giving him his mission, his calling, his vocation, his purpose. Serve, protect, and defend everything I am entrusting to you. That's what a man's supposed to do including the woman that God gifted him with. But when it came time to do just that in the garden, when Satan, why did go Satan go after the woman first? Because she is the life giver and the life bearer and Satan is the author of death. So he goes after the life bearer first. Now, if anybody follow along, anybody got their Bible here? Yeah, okay, I forgot I'm talking to Catholics, right? Here we go. You know what Bible stands for, right? Be uh, basic instruction before leaving Earth. Okay, so, <laughs> so in Genesis three, now not in my version. My version is a little closer to the Hebrew, but in, in a, if you have a New American Bible like the one they use at Mass, it says uh, she took of his fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. So he has no excuse. He was there and he did nothing to stop Satan from destroying his family. Now, in the Hebrew it just says, she gave some to her husband and he ate. Now, how do we know it didn't, it was like she took it ate and she goes, oh, let me use my feminine wiles to seduce this man with this fruit from the tree. That's not what happened. How do we know he was there? Now, if you say you in English, what does that mean? It can mean you, Or it could mean all y'all. It depends on the context. In other languages, they have different words. For example, Spanish, two is you. Vosotros is all of you. In Genesis 3, where Satan says, you will not die, for when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Plural. In Hebrew. That means he was talking to both of them. He was there. He did nothing. So how do we rectify this? Paul gives us the answer in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, it's very interesting. When I was first ordained a a deacon 16 years ago, you have to start preaching. You have to pay attention to the lectionary. I know the lectionary has a long form for readings and a short form. And typically when this reading comes along in a cycle, the lector invariably will want to read the short form because they don't want to read this. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Or some translations say submissive to. It's the same word in Greek. Be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of his wife. Skipping to verse 24. So let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Ooh, ouch. Mm. That grates hard on 21st century ears, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's verses like this why I love being Catholic. Because Dei Verbum, the second fact of the Catholic document the Word of God, if it teaches us anything, we Catholics look at the entire content and unity of Scripture. We look at the whole thing in context. What comes before? What comes after? What is the chapter about? What is the book about? What does the Old Testament have to say? We look at everything. So if you look at this pericope, this particular section of scripture in context, the whole thing starts in verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual subjection, one to the other. That's covenant relationship. See, the problem is we live in a world today where relationships are just contracts between people. It's no different when you go and buy a cell phone or something, like when I got this phone, I went to the store, I entered into a contract. The contract says for a specified amount of consideration, that's contractual language for money or trade or something of value. This phone is supposed to work a certain way. And if it doesn't work a certain way, what do I do? I bring it back, I get my money back because somebody did not honor the contract. Our young people today, that's what relationships are like. That's how we get friends with benefits. Hit it and quit it. And that garbage language that so many young people use to describe relationships where they treat each other as objects for pleasure and gratification. That is not God's plan for us. When God wants to establish a relationship with us, he doesn't establish a contract. He establishes a covenant. A contract is an exchange of goods. This is yours and this is mine. A covenant is an exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. It's making a complete and total gift of yourself to someone and that someone makes a complete and total gift of themselves back to you in love that is free and faithful and total and fruitful. It's a love that gives everything. It's a love that holds nothing back because Jesus held nothing back of his love for us from the cross. He gave everything. And that's exactly what he expects from us. That's why in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal contract. Is that what he said? New and eternal covenant. Jesus chose his words very carefully. In fact, if I was doing my talk on the Mass, I would go through the words of Jesus and show you exactly why he said those words in that order. And I'll tell you right now how important those words are of Jesus All the priests can can check me on this. In the Roman Missal, the words of Institution are in big capital letters, the words of Jesus. If the priest doesn't say those words, there's no Eucharist. Right, Brother Deacon? All right, priests, amen? If he doesn't say those, that's how powerful Jesus' words are, covenant. Now we get to, now how does he end the whole thing? How does it frame it? Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. A quote from Genesis chapter 2. The, that's, therefore, a man leaves father and to his wife, covenant relationship. So now that we have the, the, the parameters, the book ends that frame the discussion, now we can dive in without worrying. Because now we got the proper context. Be subject to one another. Wives, be subject to your husbands. The word in Greek there for subject to or submissive to is hupotasso. Hupotasso was a word that Roman soldiers used to describe troops arranged in divisions that placed themselves under the mission and direction of a leader, typically a general. So what is Paul saying here? Wives, place yourself under your husband's mission. Because what is his mission? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ show his love for the church? He died for her. He gave his life for her. So Paul is saying, wives, place yourselves under your husband's mission. His job is to serve, protect, defend, to die to himself every day of his life to live for you and your children. Or if he's a priest, father for his parish, for his, for his family. That's the, Christ gives us the model. It's being a servant. Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve. That's the model. Headship and leadership and authority is rooted in service. The reason why the man is the head of the house is not because he's the boss. If you think you're the boss of your house as a man, you're an idiot. You ain't the boss of nothing! (laughs) Here's the deal, look. My wife and I have to make decisions together. Duh, okay? But, every once in a while, we cannot make a decision together. So my wife says, you make it. Now why does she do that? Cause she's not intelligent. She's a psychologist, dude, okay? She's pretty smart. She does that because she can take to the bank that whatever decision I make will always be in her best interest and the best interest of the children, not my own. Now, unless you think my interpretation is skewed, like one guy did, he wrote me a letter. Deacon Harold, you're ruining my marriage. When I got married, I showed my wife this verse. And then my wife started watching you on that channel with the nun. And now she's telling me my job is to serve and to be a servant. What are you doing? And after I explained to him what I explained to you, I said, my friend, turn your Bible to Genesis 3, 16. Now, we all know Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium of the first gospel. I will put enmity, complete and perfect opposition between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. But then comes the temporal punishment for the woman. Here it is. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The word in Hebrew is malshah. For do, it means to dominate like a tyrant. So any man that abuses his wife physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, or any other kind of way, that is a sad and tragic effect of original sin. That is not God's plan. Paul returns us back to God's plan for the role of a husband and the father in the family. So ladies, lectors, don't be afraid to, to read that part, all right? Because now you understand the, the proper context for what Paul is saying. Now, the key, though, is how do you live that out in the family? Very simply this. Oh, boy. You know, if, don't raise, do not raise your hands. Don't do it. If I ask many here right now, how many of you pray with your wife every day? Not many men will put their hands up. Why? Here's the three top reasons I hear from men as to why they don't pray with their wives and subsequently with their wives and children. Number one, I don't have time. You see Deacon, I'm really busy. I have a busy, responsible job. And you know, I go to work, and I come home, and people are demanding things from me at work all day, and then I come home, and the family's demanding things from me, and I just wanna just come home, I just wanna decompress, I just wanna crack open a beer, eat dinner, and watch the game, I just, I just don't have time. Let me, let me translate that for you. I've been translating some words, let me translate I don't have time. I don't have time means it's not important to me. Because whatever else you're doing, instead of praying with your wife, that's what's important to you. Stop kidding yourself. Number two, she's the spiritual one. You said yourself, deacon, women are the very heart of love. They have an intimacy with the Holy Spirit as life givers. That's true, but men, you are the priest in your house. You are the priest. And what's the main job of a priest? To offer sacrifice. Third, I'm uncomfortable praying with my wife. You know, my wife has her way of praying. I have my way of praying. And when we try to pray together, it's it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable! He was uncomfortable! He prayed from the cross. Look... Let me take the excuses away from you right now. Let me tell you what my wife and I do. Okay? Now, I'm a Jersey kid, alright? Meat and potatoes Catholic. I used to be a monk, alright? I like formal, structured prayer. The more Latin, the more ribbons, the more old English, the better for me. Incense, choke me out on the incense. Straight up meat and potatoes Catholic. My wife is from Oregon, the land of the fruits and the nuts. When she prays, oh, let the Holy Spirit fall upon my heart as I walk through the woods. That don't work for me. What do we do? How do we look? Very simple. Very simple. I get up every morning, as I did this morning, first thing before my feet hit the ground, Lord, thank you for allowing me to see the light of another day so that I may give honor, praise, and glory to your most holy name. Then I get out of bed. If I'm home, I grab my wife. Lord, I thank you for the gift of my wife. I thank you for our 24 years together. I thank you for our beautiful children. Lord, help me to be the husband and the father that I need to be for them today. She says something back to me. I get out of bed. How long did that take? How long did that take? Okay, a minute, let's push the envelope. Three minutes. There's 168 hours in a week. And you're telling me you don't got three minutes to pray with your spouse every day? That's why your marriage sucks. I tell you to your face, that's why your marriage sucks. Who is the heart and center of your marriage? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the remote control? Who is the heart and center of your married life? Men. Men. He, he, I'll tell you this, when I was still active in a parish, I used to do marriage counseling now and then. I remember this one couple. It's like a tennis match. Boom, but boom back and forth, boom ba-boom, back and forth. Felt like a referee. Out! You know? Until the guy got cancer. Interesting. All the stuff. All the little pettiness, all the little things they used to fight of every single day, all of a sudden didn't matter. All that mattered was saving his life. He died a year ago. And I learned a big lesson from that. Life is too short for us to be angry all the time. That's why I don't watch TV. Ask Tom. First thing we did when I got into our room in the rectory, we took the TV and moved it out of the room. Life is too short. Why don't we treat our spouses as if they had cancer every day? How about that? Well, maybe your excuse, man, is my job. I have to be working all time. I have to be gone all the time because all the money I'm making, look what I'm able to provide for my family. You think your job is important? Try this. (laughs) Die. (laughs) Do you think that whoever you work for is going to say, oh, no, Tom is dead? There's no way we can continue this multi-billion dollar corporation. We have to fire our tens of thousands of employees. We have to liquidate all of our access. We have to sell all of our stock because there's no way we can survive because Tom died. Are you kidding me? They will mourn you for three days, then hire somebody to take your place. Because you're replaceable, but not in your family. Because that's time you never get back. Time with your wife and kids, you never get that time back. So you need to think long and hard. Now I'm going to tell my story, but I'm going to tell it on Wednesday because adoration was a huge part of how I got to be doing what I'm doing now. But here's what I did. But most importantly, men, most important, you have to be a living witness to your children of what it means to live and act as a man of God in your own house. You know, my father loved three things, womenizing, alcohol, and cigarettes. My father has 15 other children besides the four of my mother that we know of. We're able to verify the 15, but my cousin tells me there's probably more. My father drank. And if you ever come from a home where alcohol is an issue, I don't even have to tell you about the hurtful and painful and embarrassing moments growing up in a house like that. Will you wish to God that you lived at your friend's house instead of having to go home to your own house? I hated my father. I hated that man so much, I did not speak to him for 18 years. And when my children were small, they asked, where's grandpa? I told them he was dead. That's how much I hated that man. So I had no idea. Now I was going to be a monk. I had to worry about it. I never thought about getting married. Now I'm married. Now I've got, what do I do? How do I figure out this fatherhood thing? So I just started.